Hello and a very warm welcome to Red Risks Live. And it's going to be a fun-packed show today. Uh, today is probably going to be the greatest challenge for me in terms of live events because we have a, a whole bunch of great people, lots of buttons to play around with. So chances are there are going to be gremlins. If things do go a little bit pear-shaped, just stick with us while we fix those gremlins. Don't forget, this is, this is a live show. So uh, if you can, connect, uh, do something in terms of contributions, get on the live chat, ask questions, probe, ask, ask, and we can only share our knowledge and our expertise with you. Now, you may recall that this is uh, part three of three uh, on the Kinevin framework, and it's a very interesting framework. Uh, we had two shows before. In part one, we did the introduction, and to be honest with you, and, I, and I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, it was like Dave Snowden was living rent-free in my head for a week after that. It opened up part two for us in terms of looking at essentials. So in part one, we basically covered some of the domains, the five domains, and we talked about various aspects and practices. And then in part two, we talked about the essentials of liminality, how things flow between the domains and how things are put together. This is the show that everybody has been asking about and they've been waiting for. It's all about the application of the Kinevin framework. And I'm joined by a really great bunch of folks who are going to be, well, let's just say, opening up the conversations. So I'm sure you don't want to listen to me waffle on. Let me bring some of the guests in and uh, talk to you uh, quite openly about things. So we have with us, of course, uh, our uh, Dave Snowden. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, good to see you again. And you too. Um, and Dave, uh, thank you so much for extending this out to some of your colleagues. I'm going to bring them in one by one. So we have Gary Wong. Gary, how are you? Mm, running off. It is morning, 7 a.m. for me. <laughs> <laughs> and we have also Marion Keeley. We're going to go through the introductions in a minute, just very briefly, so everybody can get aligned. But also joining us are some other colleagues as well. We have Dom Cooper. Dom, greetings. How I'm are good. you? Good to meet you all. And uh, we have Mal. Mal, welcome. Hi, good afternoon from Sunny Scunny. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have uh, Charlie from last week. Charlie, Hello, hi. <laughs> and of course, we have Gemma from the stream team. Hi, Gemma, how are you? Hi, Sunny. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want to do is let me just flick up the um, the quick overview on the format for the show. The format is really straightforward. We'll do a quick introduction on the colleagues around the, the team, the, the cyber table, whatever you want to call it. Very, very quick overview on part one and two. And then this is the meat, really, a really deep dive into application with presentations from uh, Gary and from Marion. And then let's get on to live chats, open discussions, questions. And I think there's going to be some interesting discussions in there. And then finally, closing thoughts. So let me start by basically going through and asking for a quick introduction. If you could do a self-introduction, please. Gary, let's start with you going sure. in that order. Yeah? Sure. <clears throat> Thanks, Sonny. Well, for starters, everyone, I, I am not a certified safety professional. I'm formally educated as an electrical engineer, but most of my career has been in management. I was first introduced to safety as a design engineer and then later as an operations manager responsible for line crews and line and office staff. So I've been in the trenches doing crew safety compliance inspections, preparing safety plans, investigating accidents, being rewarded for achieving annual targets. 
Later as a consultant, my track record and experience led me to developing safety strategies and conducting audits. Thankfully, no one died on my watch as a line manager, but I've had my share of new miss, near misses and safety failures in terms of medical aids and lost time injuries. But honestly, to this day, I wonder about my safety record. How much of it should I credit to my good leadership and how much of it was really just due to dumb luck? Good my introduction to the Kinevin framework and Dave which goes back to 2008. My consulting assignment was to engage frontline workers immediately after a fatality. That assignment opened the doors for us to deliver what we call anthro complexity workshops to improve safety. Since then, I've spent time refining our practice to shape safety culture by viewing safety as an emergent property of a complex adaptive system. Wonderful. Thanks, Gary. So that was a quick introduction. Marion, let's, let's, let's get a bit of a rundown about you then. Uh, thanks, Sonny. Yeah, my name is Marion Kiley. I'm based in Cork in Ireland. Um, I kind of fell into health and safety, to be honest. I was, um, my background is pharmaceutical. I would have been an operator for most of my time in uh, Pfizer in Cork and uh, went back to college late and uh, fell into um, as I say, the health and safety side of things, something I'm very passionate about. But um, I came across Dave's work while I was attending a Safety Differently week-long masterclass in the Netherlands back in 2015. So he introduced, Sydney did the Kinevin framework in July, and I went over and spent a week with Dave then and Tony Quinlevin and some others. And that was the start, basically, once I um, was introduced to the Kinevin framework, it just completely changed my perspective on how I saw the world. Um, in health and safety, we seem to be obsessed with cause and effect. And um, as in there is a cause and effect relationship for everything. And if we can just identify that cause and fix it, we'll be sorted. But like the world doesn't work like that. And we can see that at the minute in our current times. So yeah, that's kind of what has brought me here today. And uh, thanks very much for the invitation to do so. It's a pleasure. Dom, I'm going to go clockwise. Um, Dom, let's go with yourself. Oh, hi, hi. I'm Dom. Um, Dom Cooper. Um, I'm a chartered uh, fellow of IOSH and a chartered psychologist, uh, industrial organisational psychology. I uh, got a PhD at um, UMIS in Manchester. A bit like you, Marion. I didn't go to college till I was in my thirties. I was in the Royal Engineers, like Dr. Mao, um, from the age of seventeen to about twenty-four, and then I was a scaffolder by trade. And then I started going to night school down when I was doing the bridge work and form work on the M25. So like you have been there, I've done it. It gives me, a, and probably you also, a different eye for HSE from all the academics and the theories and so on. And for me, it's always, uh, how do we save a life? How do we make sure the bloke doesn't get killed? And whatever theory that does it, that's what I'm into. Brilliant. Thanks, Dom. Mal, quick intro from yourself. Okay. Yeah, uh, good afternoon to Jorg, who's just uh, uh, switched on. Uh, I'm uh, Malcolm Roberts. Uh, I'm ex-military. Uh, and unlike uh, Marion, I didn't fall into safety. I walked into safety uh, uh, as, as a second career uh, uh, from coming out of the army. Uh, I spent uh, 20, 20 plus years in the, in the army. And I've just spent 20 plus years uh, in health and safety. I'm the director of health and safety uh, for my company. I've worked uh, right across the board. I think oil and gas predominantly, uh, nuclear, utilities, uh, and more recently in the last 10 years, uh, renewables offshore. Brilliant. Thanks, Mal. Charlie? Yeah, keep this short and sweet. My name is Charlie. I'm the project HSE manager. I represent the client who is the Royal Commission for Riyadh City, 
on the Riyadh Bus Rapid Transit project, which is the largest project of its kind anywhere in the world at the moment. Uh, peak last year, we had we, we around about five and a half thousand people spread across the entire the entire uh, Riyadh geographical area. Um, and I'm very, very much interested in the practical application of the Kinefin framework and what I do on a, on a on a daily basis. So that's about me. Brilliant. Thanks, Charlie. And Gemma? Gemma's on mute. Yes, I was. Sorry, a small child in the background and she doesn't stop talking. Uh, hi, uh, Gemma Hallifield. I don't have anyone near as illustrious uh, background as anybody else. But um, like Marion, I started in pharmaceuticals. So I have a, a pharmaceutical and chemical sciences uh, degree to start off with, then went into food manufacturing and been health and safety manager for a, a site in the Midlands for the last Yes. Thanks, Gemma. Well, we all know Dave. Dave's on part three now, so he's probably fed up with me as well now. But we, we know Dave. He's the he's the founder of the Kinevin Framework, the granddaddy of Kinevin Framework, and uh, very, very uh, a very smart fella, if I may say so. Very smart fella. Uh, actually, around the table, we've got really super smart people. I mean, we've 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 uh, hit the lot. We've hit the light a little bit. Dom's a worldwide authority on behavioral safety. Mm -hmm. Mal's a subject matter expert. Between us all, I think we've got nearly 250 years plus worth of experience, so it's a good crew. Um, let's dive straight in. Now, Gary, you have prepared a slideshow, if I'm right, yeah? Yep, I have. So let me, let me put your slide pack up, and then um, I'm, I'm just going to let you go through this, Gary, and then what we'll do is we'll, we'll just see if there's any chats coming through. If not, we'll park it up the end, and we'll cover them that way. Is that okay? Works with me. Um, so let me start. Um, I've got a, a presentation, should last about 15 minutes, and then I want to segue into Marion to kind of take you through that. And then right. if all goes well, then we can actually get into the chat and the Q&As, which will actually cover both of our sessions here. Yeah. Before you start, Gary, can I just say Dave is on the show and is very, very kind of Dave to come on to part three. I know that you and Marion are going to talk a lot more, but hopefully Dave can also enlighten us <coughs> with some uh, information from other areas as well. Sorry, Gary, back to you. Okay, thanks, Andrew. here. So I have three topics that I want to cover in the next 15 minutes. I'm going to provide a safety context for each Kinevin domain. I'm going to talk a bit about robustness and resilience. And lastly, I'm going to describe three complexity implications for safety professionals. So Kinevin is a framework, not a model nor a solution. It doesn't evaluate, but describes a situation. Kinevin gives us a way to looking at things from different perspectives so you can make decisions and therefore you can make distinctions as well. And we use methods and tools that work only in a particular domain. We call this bounded applicability. So let me kind of walk you through there quickly on this. In the clear domain, we use rigid constraints like compliance, rules, best practices. When developing regulations, policy standards, you do that as a safety expert while in the complicated domain. Alternatives are analyzed to create if-then predictable processes and systems to govern worker behavior. But when there's uncertainty, ambiguity, or disagreement between the experts, we move into the complex domain to resolve. And we also use different complex facilitating methods and tools. One, one example is using learning themes. 
So when we lose, back um, hang on a sec here. Sorry, pardon me, hit the wrong button there. I got a lot of buttons here too, Sonny. So that's that gremlin. That's that gremlin creeping again, Gary. <laughs> Must be in that breakfast gremlin. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so an example of um, of a of a tool is learning teams, which I'm sure some of you do employ. What do we do? We enable them to probe what's going on, experiment, and perhaps find a new safety solution. We unexpectedly plunge into the chaotic domain if an accident occurs. So we need to act fast and escape quickly. An example I'm very familiar with is an electric power outage, because that's where I kind of worked in for about a quarter of a century. Hmm. A line crew would be immediately dispatched to get the lights back on as quickly as possible. Now, in the middle is the AC domain. Now, Dave talked a bit about the about Aparia last week. That's a state of, of course, being aware that you are confused and know you eventually need to work your way out. The beauty of the Kinevin is that you can pick the version that resonates with the group you're in. As you can see in this one here, I'm choosing to use an earlier non-liminal version and calling the middle domain confused. As long as it makes sense to the people I'm talking to, um, I'll use whatever I have to use. Bounded applicably means matching the solution to the problem of hand. If you have a simple task to do, you're in the clear domain. So you don't hold a meeting to discuss options. That's not necessary. Quit messing around and wasting people's time. Just get it done and tell people later what you did. Bounded applicability also means to be very careful and not to use the wrong tool because we can become really highly skilled using a hammer. And when we get into that state, we see everything as a nail, even a screw. And when we get frustrated, it's because we, it's not working for us and we just pound harder to the point of damaging the wood. So that's kind of a quick kind of run through how we use the, how we use the Kinevin framework to describe what's happening in safety. Let me quickly shift to robustness and resilience. If you want a simple overarching safety strategy, and this is up for debate, it's strength and robustness and build, resil build resilience. Now, robustness is what we do really, really well already. That's PPE, skills training, hazard identification, SMS, all really good things to prevent accidents and failures. <clears throat> So when you, if you're having a chat with safety engineers in your organization, you can go up and ask them, so what are you working on? Are you strengthening robustness? Are you building resilience? I think we need to define what we mean by resilience here. Now our definition goes beyond the usual bouncing back from where you came. We really talk about three capabilities and you can see that on the, on the little diagram on the, on the right. We talk about A, which is fast recovery which is bouncing back. We also talk about, shown in blue there, speedy exploitation of a serendipitous opportunity. And C, which I think really, really interesting to us and how we can prevent things is what we call early detection. So that little symbol there is kind of like a radar. It's a scanning device. So you want to prevent falling into the chaotic domain, which Dave explained before, of course, is that you don't want to go over that cliff. Let me take you through a bit of a walkthrough and how it works here. Each one involves <clears throat> movement between domains. 
That's what we call Kinevin dynamics. And I believe that's the real power of the framework. We can describe what happens in the real world in a way that people can easily grasp and understand. So let me explain what by that here. You're at point A in the clear domain here. Some sort of failure occurs, plunging you into the chaotic domain. Let's again use the example of a power outage and say it's due to a car crashing into a utility pole. <clears throat> so visualize the scenario. Injured driver in a crumpled car, broken pole, and overhead wires lying on the ground. When the emergency crew arrives, first act is to stabilize the situation. And that means handling immediate dangers such as fire, leaking fuel. Then you attend to the personal injuries. Somebody else will rope off the area to make it safe for the public. And you may have to do traffic control when the police show up. These actions move you into the confused domain where you decide what to do next. You have some choices. Since power restoration is paramount, the tendency is to choose path A and return to the old normal. But there's another choice you can make, and that's to follow the blue path. You can move into the complex domain, explore opportunities, and find a better solution, which shifts the operating point far away from the clear and chaotic boundary. If point A was the old normal, think about point B as being the new normal. In some cases, you may decide to do both A and B, get the lights back on quickly, and decide to later relocate that vulnerable pole to a safer location so cars don't keep on hitting it. If you note on the diagram on the right side, I'm showing two Bs here, one that's in the complicated and the other in the clear domain. Here's why I'm doing this. This is a fun kind of diagram. It's a 3D version uh, that was developed. What this diagram shows is the levels of energy required to move from one domain to another. While the clear domain sounds simple and obvious, it takes a lot of energy to remain there. So think about the amount of time if you're a line supervisor or even a foreman or whatever, or a safety professional, think of the amount of time spent inspecting, compliance checking, testing, auditing, reporting, and let's not forget the time and effort to reward and punish people. To move point B into the clear domain, you have to climb up to this level here, shown as this little figure here, climbing up a ladder, for example, here. It takes energy. You can also see why fast recovery and returning to the clear domain can also be really expensive here. Now, I, I know that in, in my budget for emergency restoration here, I had to put a lot of money in there because quite often when somebody hits a pole, it happens in the middle of the night here. So I have to pull my crews out in the middle of the night. I'm on double time, maybe triple time here, and I lose them because <clears throat> they're on rest time for the next day here. So it's really, really expensive to do that. Now look, if we keep point B in the complicated domain, it requires less energy consumption. It's also a lot easier to move into the complex domain when dealing with unknowns. This translates into treating frontline workers as on-the-job experts who can adapt when rigid constraints don't make sense. To understand why 
why should a rigid rule like best practices, why don't they make sense? Let's turn our attention to what happens in the real world using statistical analysis. Okay. The blue curve is a normal bell curve or Gaussian distribution. The y-axis is frequency, how often the event occurs. And event size is the x-axis. That's how big the event is. Typically, our tension is on the mean or average. This is our focus in the Kinevin clear and complicated domain. And as anybody knows in statistical analysis, we typically treat events at the edges as outliers. And they probably won't happen. So we decide to ignore them. So we create rules and enforce everyone should hear them. We kind of focus it kind of like in the middle where most of the action takes place. The red curve. <clears throat> Sorry, Gary, Gary, just, 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 uh, Mal, you had your hand up. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. Uh, uh, can, we, can we make sure that everybody's muted except for uh, uh, Gary? Gary, yeah. because I'm getting a lot of feedback. Okay, okay I'll, I'll mute everyone from this end, okay? Uh, Thank on. you. Thanks, Mal. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah, come. Okay, right. The red curve is a Pareto distribution. Pareto is a power law distribution. <clears throat> What's a power law? It's a functional relationship between two quantities where a relative change in one quantity results in a proportional relative change in the other. Good example, an easy one is the length of a square is x, then the area is x squared. If the length x is double, the area is multiplied by a factor of four. Many natural phenomena follow the Pareto principle. We have a large number of fleas, small number of elephants, and so do many human activities. You've heard about the Pareto principle. 80% of outcomes are due to 20% of causes. 80% of healthcare resources are used by 20% of the patients. Both curves are similar, as you can see in the diagram, in the apex region, where frequency is highest. But if you note, as we move right and increase the event size, note how the two curves separate. We are now moving into the Kinevin complex domain where heuristics replace rules. These two diagrams here kind of expand on that um, graph, except we're gonna do a log log thing. So, but the key question after seeing all this, and if you're not a statistical person, don't worry about that. But the question you wanna ask yourself, why should you care as a safety professional? Well, there's three implications I wanna share with you. One, safety rules are designed for the mean of a Gaussian distribution. Evidence-based experts in the complex complicated to me, will pin best practices at the apex. It sounds logical. If you're going to design a one-size-fits-all rule, do that where frequency is highest. But the rule is limited, as you can see now. It won't fit events that are outside the Pareto world. And many things that happen in the real world happen in the Pareto world. As complexity increases, workers will be facing more events with aspects not identified or known when that rule was initially created. So what's the implication there? Be careful how you create rigid constraints here. And perhaps you need a rule that states when a rule can be bent or broken. Implication number two, minor slips, trips, and falls are Gaussian. There are many events, small impact. 
major injuries and fatalities are in a Pareto world. Few of them, but huge impact. The worlds are different. You can't use Gaussian data to predict an event in a Pareto world. So what's the implication? Focusing on reducing minor accidents will eliminate major accidents is a myth. So this is the Heinrich pyramid here, shown by statistics and understanding Pareto and Gaussian, why you just can't look at focusing on fixing the small stuff and hope that it's going to eliminate. The other thing too, which I'm seeing more and more uh, research being done on, is our good old TRIR, Total Recordable Incident Rate. That's a Gaussian thing here. And therefore, you cannot use it to predict fatalities. Implication number three, this is the biggie. We will see disasters and catastrophes more frequently. Recall I said the two curves separate as the event size increases. Well, on this log-log plot, we end up getting a region which is called the fat or heavy tail. In the real world, we follow the red, not the blue line. This is why we're seeing more black swans. This year, as an example, we run out of letters to name hurricanes, signaling, really, it's a brand new catastrophic era. At no point in 170 years of Atlantic Basin weather history have so many strong storms formed so quickly. Now add to that climate change and social injustice to the list of wicked columns. What's the implication? Well, it's unreasonable to believe that well, all we have to do is invest more resources on risk planning in the complicated domain. Let's think back to that overarching safety strategy. Honestly, let's give robustness a backseat. Instead, we need to work on building resilience here. In particular, C, early detection capability using human sensors. And as Dom kind of said, looking for those methods here to prevent injuries, let's see what we can do to prevent those things before we plunge over the cliff. Now, to explain early detection and how we can use human sensors, I'm, I'd like to turn it over to Marion to explain the anthropomplexity approach and how we use it with SenseMaker. Okay, thanks, Gary. So I'm going to remove your slide pack off there, add Marion's. Now, I know everybody will have questions for Gary, so what we'll do is we'll let Marion finish it, and then we'll come back to it. I know Dom's uh, shaking his head away there. So, uh, Marion, I've got your slide pack up there. Please um, go for it. Thanks, um, Sonny. So thanks, Gary, for that. So I suppose Gary has presented a wealth of information there. So I suppose what we're looking at now is like, where do we start? We're going out onto our sites and our plants, wherever it is that we're based. What can we do with this information to bring it into the practical day to day in how we actually manage safety in the workplace? So what I'm going to put forward here is that we look at the evolutionary potential of the present. A lot of the times we look at safety strategy and we set goals and targets and we're looking at the what and we're looking at where we're going, but we often don't actually look as to where we are positioned at the minute. Where are we really? Not where do we think we are based on our own biases and interpretation of some fragmented data and some numbers that have come back to us, but actually where are we really? Can we tap into that information? 
So what, I, what I'm going to put forward is that we actually try and we work with stories and we create maps like a map that's here. And this is a narrative landscape. This is a map of the stories in our organization, right? And we're just comparing and contrasting two aspects here, which I'm going to go into in much more detail. But if we could actually say for sure, not that this is where I think I am, but this is actually where our people see us as being. We're here where that X is, you know? And what this is telling us here is that actually people are bending the rules to get the work done. They're telling us this in the stories. How can we measure our success on this? Typically, we look at KPIs, and Gary has mentioned there about Triffer and how it's based on Gauzy, and it's, it's not ideal to be looking at these. We need to start looking at something more organic that really represents the reality of what's happening in the organization. So here we want to look at and say, right, where ideally would we like to go? What direction would we like to go in? We mightn't actually reach the screen mark over here, but actually, where might be an adjacent possible that we would be happy with to bring us in that direction? How can we get less stories like this? And how can we get more stories like this here where the, the green is? So I'm going to go into some detail here on how we can collect these stories and what they can actually deliver us for, for us and the insights we can get from them. So when we look at stories, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the times we look at the what. We're looking at what people do. We're looking at the stuff that's up on the walls. We look at the procedures, all the artifacts and stuff. But if we can actually get to what lies beneath and if we can get to the why, we're really onto something here. Because then with that, we can get the context and we can understand why people see the world as they do. We get insights into the norms, the shared assumptions, the unwritten rules, their beliefs, their feelings, their attitudes. And when we look at these attitudes, and we look at those placed on one of those maps, those narrative landscapes, we have potential to shift those. Once we know what they are and we tie back in with our frontline workers and we try to understand why the attitudes are what they are, and if we develop some safe to fail probes, we have potential to shift those and to measure our successes via the stories. How can we get more stories like these and less stories like these? And it's much more value added over time rather than some linear strategic planning that really is irrelevant in the bigger scheme of things. So I mentioned stories and via stories, we can get to the why. And I'm not talking about somebody sitting down, spinning out a good yarn with a good like once upon a time, a beginning, a middle and an end. We're talking here about micro narratives, just like you see in these pictures, people who are sharing stories via the water cooler um, out in the plant. If you're walking across the yard and you meet someone, what is it that people are saying? If we can tap into that, into what they really believe, but which they probably won't say in front of you, then we're on to something. And it's worth noting as well, you might have seen some happy folk there, you know, and a lot of the times in health and safety and as health and safety professionals, you're probably aware of this, but we, we tend to kind of get the, the raw end of the stick and everything is kind of where the party poopers and things are negative, you know, but actually what we're get, getting from the stories, we're getting actually what's working well as well. And this is good for leadership and management because they do invest a lot of money in health and safety. So you're finding out here, what is it that's actually working well and how might we amplify that across the organization? But you're also getting insights into where things aren't working all that well. So one of these things um, that I like is that you get to see the donut and not just the hole. You get to see what's present, not just what's missing. And I think we need a little bit more of that um, in, in health and safety to give ourselves you know, a bit of credit for the good work that's being done. So what I'm going to present here is a safety pulse, okay? 
And basically, Safety Pulse, um, Gary was involved in the design of this, and it's with Cognitive Edge, and it's looking to actually collect stories using SenseMaker, which is a, a software, which helps us actually look at the patterns in that. It gives us the quantitative data via those patterns, but it gives us the qualitative data. We can actually get the context via the stories as well. So I'm going to jump in and show you some of that. So for any of you that aren't familiar with SenseMaker, um, it can actually collect stories via people's mobile phone. If there's an app there um, where you can distribute um, the collection tool, it can be used remotely. It, you can send a link to desktops. It has been used across the globe um, from the UN to the likes of Pfizer. It has been used, Dave, you, you can go into more detail on that later on, but uh, it is a fantastic tool and to see what comes out of it um, is great. So people can actually record um, their voice if they want in relation to the story collection. They can take pictures or share photos. And then in, in the collector, there's actually some triads and dyads, and I'm going to go into some detail um, on those as well, uh, where people will actually attach some meaning to the experience they share. So here I'm sharing some prompts from that safety pulse, okay? And these are open-ended, non-leading questions. So one of them here is think about something that happened recently at work that either pleased you or bothered you. Briefly described what happened below. When you look at that, that is not prompting someone or leading them a certain way. It is wide open for them to share an experience. A lot of the times what we see with surveys is that people are prompted based on the biases of the actual survey designer in relation to what information they're going to gather. Another one here, tell a story when you detected an emerging unsafe condition. What did you do? What happened? Imagine if we can actually get these insights and people share these anonymously and we get to see at scale, not just one individual story, but actually we see the patterns from thousands of these stories. Um, what insights we can gain from that. Another prompt, tell a story about somebody who made a major decision that either improved or worsened safety. What happened? And the fourth one here then is think of a time when you faced a work dilemma due to a policy, regulation or rule conflict. For example, rule A says do this action, which in your mind violated rule B. What happened? Sometimes people are forthcoming with this information. It might come out in meetings. Sometimes there is a learned helplessness because frontline workers have reported stuff and reported action hasn't been taken. And there just isn't a will really to actually follow through and to raise these items anymore. And that is dangerous territory because that is your fat tail. Because when you look at their what's plausible and the impact, it can be really, really big if you have organisational drift um, coming in here. So we just ask people to share their story. There's no other prompts, ju just bear the four prompts there. They share their story and they give it a hashtag. And then I mentioned we have triads. So people can actually um, interpret their stories here and they give it meaning. And the example that's given here is like, if you spent all day yesterday sleeping, you would actually have it up here, the yellow one up on top. Um, if you spent it half sleeping and half eating, it would be the green. And if you had a little nap in the middle of the sleeping and eating, maybe the pink. It's just giving you an example of how, to, how these triads work. But what you will see is that there is no right or wrong way here. With a Likert scale in a survey, you can go all zeros or ones or nines or tens, depending on your form on that particular day. There is no right or wrong way to fill this in. This is just you sharing an experience and attaching your meaning to it. There is nobody coming in that's going to say, actually, what this person meant by that story is this. The person themselves are doing that. So any biases are removed. And this is what we call disintermediation. So actually, the people at the top of the organization can get to see what the people who are actually out there doing the work 
what it is actually, what are their stories, and they can see what the meaning is from that without any introduction of bias from anybody else. So here we can see one of the triads. When this happened, people's attention was on quality, schedule or time or cost. And over here, we can see a populated collection here. Oh, we can see Sorry, that's Charlie. That's Charlie's call to prayers. Okay. <laughs> It's quite here. No, there's Charlie's silence yet. So um, work is impacted by here. We can see the populated one here. Each of these dots represent a story. So if you were to go in on the software, you can actually just pick one corner. And we can see here this cluster up towards the top. There's a big percentage of stories shared around that. But we can actually go in and we can zoom in on those stories to get whatever pattern it is that intrigues us. The pattern is most important that we're looking at and then we can actually go in and say right what's the context of these stories that's leading to this and we can contrast and compare i have another triad here um this specific situation could have been improved with changes to processes or procedures tools equipment or technology people and that meaning skills behavior relationships so if we look at this populated version here we can see down here in the right hand corner there's plenty of stories down here. There's a really good cluster of them here. So maybe I'm interested to see some of the stories that comes from that. Do you know, um, what is it about people's skills, behavior and relationships? So here I've just an example of four of these stories. And if we look here at contractor differences, if you want to read this one, I'm always a bit leery when we and subcontractors work on a site together. Our rules seem to be different. The contractor's job was to prepare a site by digging and scratching the surface. The contractor didn't have the proper grounding in place or a safety watcher. I brought it to his attention. His reaction was okay and he stopped for the day. The next day he was back and nothing changed. I was told it was a good thing to bring up. In a nutshell, I was also told to ignore it the following day. So what this does is this just gives us an insight as to why people might feel as they do. It gives you their attitudes. Are they disillusioned? Are they really peed off? Because um, they're being told one thing, but the, you know, leadership's like audio is not, or their video isn't aligned with their audio. So it, it just helps us. It doesn't give us a solution, but it gives us a better context, a better understanding in relation to where we need to be looking at now. These are leading indicators. These are telling us um, potentially, you know what I mean? What, what is the reality out there on the site and why things are as they are? We also have diets. And what these are are two kind of polar opposites. So it's not a Likert scale on a zero to 10. It's just two opposites here, guidance and direction. And this situation was on the left hand side, it was excessive. It was micromanaged on the right hand side. It was lacking more was needed. So here we can see in the collection that was filled out where basically people are saying that guidance and direction is lacking and more is needed. And there was 14 stories here. There was nine, five and two. So we can see there's like the mean is leading up towards this end here. So that is giving us good insights when we actually look at um, all those uh, collectively. In order to be productive, people had to either bend the rules to get the work done or they had to bend the work to comply with the rules. And this is what people, um, the majority of the meanest here are saying, that people had to bend the rules to get the work done. So that's interesting in itself. You know, a lot of thought goes into creating these rules and these procedures. And why is it? that people have to bend these rules to get the job done. I want to know more about that, you know? Um, so this enables us to get the context to actually go in there and actually look at those, what is it, the 27 stories here in this um, gathering, um, in this collection, and to see where are they breaking the rules. 
So here we're seeing um, a map again, um, and this is basically where we compare, contrast and compare two diets. So two of the ones I've gone through here, um, on the x-axis we have guidance and direction, and we're saying here down in the left-hand corner it was excessive, micromanaged or lacking, more was needed on the right-hand side. And we contrast that then to be productive, people had to bend the work to comply with the rules or bend the rules to get the work done. So here is our map showing us exactly why, and each of those dots is a story that you can go in, you can read in relation to why people have to bend the rules to get the work done. And it's also showing us, you know, whereby the guidance and direction was lacking and more was needed. So we might be looking at the top right hand side saying, OK, there's a huge cluster up here and this really isn't where we want to be. Where do we want to be? Maybe if we can go a little bit more towards the centre. So how can we get less stories like this up on the right hand corner and back and more stories here towards the centre? So again, it's by tapping in and getting the context, developing some safe to fail probes, safe to fail experiments and seeing can we actually shift that pattern? And that as a KPI, as an indicator, that vector shift is much more meaningful than actually going out there counting triffer and uh, injury rates, as Gary has presented earlier on. Um, if we're looking to actually genuinely shift our ecosystem within our organization. So I just have a, a representation here showing like typical surveys, you know, quantitative, qualitative, and how SenseMaker and Pulses actually compare with those. And just in relation to the bias, um, there can be a lot of bias when you look at surveys in relation to the questions asked and the leading, whereas with SenseMaker, people interpret their own story. We covered that already, that disinterme disintermediation piece. And so you're actually ruling out that bias that can be brought in by um, analysts and researchers. So the data quality and quantity, sometimes with the surveys, you get lots of data, but without context. And I'm sure some of you have been there where you're looking at numbers and scratching your head and not knowing what the numbers actually mean. Um, with the qualitative, you can see that uh, you can get the context, but high levels of bias is in there as well. Of course, here you're getting the data and the context combined with SenseMaker. The speed of the feedback, we, we know ourselves when you get research undertaken, it can take months, if not years, to actually undertake it. Whereas actually with SenseMaker, it's in real time. You can see it, um, you know, um, you can get fast pattern detection, immediate connection with the data and stories and continuous evolving feedback. And the actionable insight in relation to, it's lovely having all this information, but what are we going to do with it? Gary touched on our human sensor network by having a heightened awareness out there and tapping into these stories that gives us a huge benefit now in actually taking action at an early stage when we have those weak signals with a view to actually preventing those undesirable events happening downstream. So, and again, here we can see with um, SenseMaker um, immediately actionable insights with real-time uh, feedback loops. So I have one other slide, which I'm not going to go through, but Sonny, I have shared this with you. Um, yeah. And if people want to look through it, they can. And I just want to give a shout out to um, Viv and Laurel and Julie and the team in Complexibility in Australia who shared this uh, recently in a session that they ran. But this just compares traditional research with the SenseMaker approach. And there's more detail if people want to go in um, on that. So that's my, my piece. I'd just like to say thank you. And uh, happy to tie in with Gary and take any questions that people might have. I hope that was somewhat helpful. Yes, it was, uh, Marion. Um... Quite a lot to digest there, and we're going to start of open up with questions. I know a lot of, I know Dom's had his hand up, and a few other people have had their hands up. So, if I could um, just say that if you have a question, and I'm not 
seeing you just put your hand up i'm sorry to ask that but just do that but dom let's start with you because i know you had some things that you were going through your mind i could see you making some notes as well did you have anything specific in mind dom you're on mute oh let me unmute you hold on yeah yeah thanks honey yeah can you hear me? I can. okay uh that was highly interesting um and it's highly interesting to me one I like the Kinevan model, always have done. It's a known, uh, known to unknown unknowns, and it was in design, uh, in the design field back in the 2000s. So I've always liked it. I like the fact that David's added in constraints and kind of filled in some of the detail in between and so on. So I do have a specific question for David, and I'm kind of absorbing everything Gary said and Marion said. And there's so much that's just going off in my mind because almost everything that they said is diametrically opposed to what the research tells us. So I'm like, wow. So now I know Gary's into safety too and whole Nagel's work and so on and Decker's work and so on and so forth. And as you all know, I've been writing and critiquing safety too, left, right and centre. I understand what you're doing with SenseMaker because that was one of my questions. Peer, in a way, is the equivalent of SenseMaker, except it's focused on behavior. It's not on attitudes and so on. And like Marion says, you can get instant feedback. But it's much more pragmatic in terms of the, it's structured in terms of safety management systems and safety management processes and safety culture, what the safety culture research shows us. Because a lot of what Marion said goes entirely against the safety culture research. So shine, which is where you've got your assumptions and your beliefs and your norms, has never been linked to incident rates. I heard Gary talk about TRIR and just knocked it as if to say, don't worry about it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Because I think the paper Gary's referring to actually says if you get enough data, which is the point with SenseMaker and with Peer, if you get enough data, you can work these things out. But the TRIR, because incidents themselves are relatively rare events, that's your problem. So you have to extend out the time scale to be able to use the TRIR in a, in a proper way. So, and then we're talking about Pareto analysis with the 80-20 thinking. And I'm thinking, we were doing this in BBS back in um, Bridgewater with um, Courtauld. Courtaulds in 1992, where we were saying, what's the 20% of behaviours that's causing 80% of your accidents. Within nine months, we'd reduce their injury rate by 82%. And, and, and so I'm kind of looking at all of this. I love what you've done with the software. I like the idea of that topographic mapping and, and whatever. I understand how it all works. So, but I think that a lot of the theory that's been pushed out in these two um, presentations I would fundamentally disagree with and hold up the research to say, excuse me, the research says this, the research says this, the research says this. So I think that's a different conversation. And in many ways, I would love to have another two or three sessions with Gary and Marion to really dig into this. It would be fantastic. But my, my big question that I've saved for David, I've watched this all the way through, and I do apologize I wasn't here last week, but it kind of goes right to the heart of where we are now with Marion and Gary. And the heart of the matter is that Hol Nagel and Decker and Ron Gant and everybody in the safety two field says that everybody is constantly living in this domain of complexity. 
Now, my argument is, hang on, an organization is an organization. So by definition, it is organized. Because it is organized, it lives and resides mostly within the clear or perhaps the complicated domains. Yeah. So why does the safety to people with the resilience thinking and so on and so forth, and believe me, when it comes to resilience, I've discovered we've got maybe 500,000 different definitions of which they are still trying to work their way through as to what it all actually means. But my, my question for David is, is it right to assume that most of the world of work lives in this complexity or complex domain rather than complicated? Because I think no, that is shaping the fundamental debate. It's actually wrong, and I've argued this with some of the Safety 2 guys, that they're fundamentally creating a dichotomy between order and complexity. And the essence of humans is we learn to create order, and it's a damn good job we've got to do it. So in nuclear power, for example, um, there's a level of rigid, rigid application of rules that you need to have. In fact, I wrote a blog post on this last week because I'm getting fed up with people in what I'll call the popular end of complexity thinking, who are not realizing that human beings have learned how to create constraints, which actually create ordered systems. Okay? So point number one is about 80, 90% of what goes on in safety is probably ordered. Yeah. Um, however, anything to do with, and then, then we get into what research you use, all right? So sorry to get on this, but ontology precedes epistemology. So the ontological base of inductive research, which is what you're talking about, basically assumes a degree of repetition and it will get it with correlation. Abductive research, which is a different theoretical framing, deals with complex systems where you don't have repetition, yeah, where the systems are deeply entangled. So for example, human attitudes tend to be in that area, which is what the software is designed to do which is to measure attitudes as a lead indicator rather than compliance with a lack indicator. It's also designed to deal with what is increasingly becoming the case. Is And again, this I can point you to another whole body of research, but generally the natural sciences, not the social sciences. If you over-constrain a system which is highly entangled, you tend to produce perverted results. All right, now this is one of the problems we've got within within safety. So to give you an example, there's a huge body of research, I can send you the links to new scientists on this, which show that when people are working for explicit goals, it destroys intrinsic motivation. Yeah, there is actually no evidence to contradict that. Yeah? Um, and the highest level of explicit goals are in things like health. So if you force people into a measurement system, which they know is not appropriate to the job, what they end up doing is working around the rules to make the rules work despite themselves. Now that then creates another problem because then they start to break the rules and then the rule breaking gets worse and then you get disastrous outcomes and things like that. So I, I gave an address to the NERDIS conference in Wales recently and I got a standard ovation. because I said, you guys break the rules three or four times a day in order to provide empathetic care to patients. And they do. Right? But they also know when the researchers come around to interview them, interview them, they better damn well say they're following the rules, because otherwise there's real trouble. Right? <laughs> now, one of the things that SenseMaker does, and this is the point about the triads, and you know, we, we wired people up for this. There are advantages to having a chair in psychology. You can wire up first-year students, and they can't stop you doing it. <laughs> um, 
what triads do is they create a cognitive load on the brain because you don't know what the right answer is. Yeah? Now, that's actually really important because you flick from what's called autonomic process into novel receptive processing. Or what was in popular literature, though it's inaccurate, was from thinking fast to thinking slow. So you get to deeper attitudes. So we've had a series of projects where we've actually shown that the imposition of order, which is a hugely valuable aspect of human management, is taken too far and it forces people into gaming behavior. So that's where you get more rather than less accidents. Right? So, for example, if you look at military decision making on this, which is where I got a lot of the initial ideas from, they have rules about when you can break the rules. And then they have heuristic based control, which applies if the rules no longer apply. And effectively, what they're doing is they're creating a permeable boundary between order and complexity, but they're creating constraints on who that permeability will apply to. So I think it's a both-and process, not an either-or process. I don't see any real value, to be honest, in safety two as opposed to safety one. In fact, I'll go back to talking. That was to sheep, other sheep appear different or to shepherds. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the reality is really very simple. Um, an ordered system becomes complex in a phase shift. It literally is a phase shift. It's a sudden switch in the energy gradient. Because the level of entanglement means the old rule system breaks down. Now you need to be able to recognize that and you need to have different rules for the other side. And your research then is abductive, it's not inductive, and that, that's important. So can I summarize what I've taken from that, David? That you said in 90% of cases we live in a complicated domain. There are uh, grounds for arguing that the 10% of the time we would be in the complex domain. And I'm going back to Gary and Gary. Gary was talking about the triangle, Heinrich's triangle with SIFs and low incidents. And I know the slips, trips and falls actually help kill 40% of people worldwide. Um, but they're low, small events. Okay. Mm. But to get back to the point, this 10% and one of the things that the SIF movement came out from the Mercer network, which was industry trying to work out what's going on in safety. Why is it, so the Macondo, Texas City, why is it on one day we give them a safety award for holding the handrail, but the next day or the same day we blow the plant up? So they were looking at that, and what they came to the conclusion was that the serious injuries and fatalities have different routes uh, to their causation. And I know that a lot of the safety two people don't like causation, but that is what I'm getting from you is this 10% of complexity mode is in the SIF domain, which is at the top of the Heinrich triangle, not the 90% at the bottom. So that was my I, understanding. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with the triangle, but in broad principle, but I think the other thing is when something becomes destabilized, the percentages start to switch. So what, what you start to see is if you, you keep constraining a system, and every time you get a failure, you add another constraint, you actually reach the point where not following the rules is the norm rather than an exception. Mm. But people are pretending to follow the rules because otherwise they get punished. And then the phase shift starts to happen. Yeah. Now that's related to the way that human beings work. So for example, one of the big things we do is to use ritual instead of rules when the problem becomes highly complex. 
um, because ritual is a more effective way of triggering human cognitive responses on a whole body response, not just a, a cognition response. Mm. So I think all of this and the whole point about the Kenobi framework is which domain are you in, what do you do? But there is, I think, something fundamental which Marion has been illustrating here is lead indicators are more important than clients. All right, so human attitudes are one of these the most significant lead indicators. If we can accurately measure the lead, indi lead indicators, then we can indicate where we're starting to approach a phase shift. We will find out where the rule constraint is becoming excessive or too bureaucratic. Yeah. Um, so we can start to create some dividing lines. And if you intervene to change attitudes, it's not pejorative. If you intervene after a compliance breach, you've got major problems even understanding what went on anyway. Right? I think the other thing is, um, I mean, there are differences of opinions on this, right? There are a group of people who are wrong, and there are those of us who are right, but it doesn't make any difference, right? <laughs> I know so, that yeah, one. <laughs> those of us who are right basically say there are no root causes in a complex adaptive system. Um, the people who are wrong say, well, there are, but we could never discover them. But it doesn't make any difference because if you don't discover them, they don't exist. All right. Um, so going down a root cause analysis in a highly complex position can lead you to actually a sort of um, a dangerous set of conclusions in terms of the way it works. Because what you do in a complex system is you measure the dispositional state of the system, which measures the energy gradients. And this comes from constructor theory and physics. Within the bounds of natural law, which is how human beings make decisions and how systems work, whatever has the lowest energy cost is what will happen. So I'll give you an expenses, my favorite IBM expenses one, right, to make the point. So IBM decided in their great wisdom that we couldn't buy food for staff. And I remember we went to them and said, well, yeah, this is a bit crazy. You know, I'm a C-level executive, right? Um, I got called out at four o'clock in the morning because we got a corporate 999 system which has gone down. We got $50 million of penalties if we don't get it up. And the only thing I can do, right, is to basically keep everybody away from the systems programmers because that's my role, to fend people off so they can solve the problem and buy them pizza and Coke. Yeah, and I said, so what do I do? And, and they got slightly worried, so I had explained I meant Coca-Cola, but after we got over that, the problem problem right they then decided well it was okay to do this provided i got vice presidential approval 48 hours in advance now at this point you express deep concern right and you say that's a brilliant idea you know it's wonderful to work for ibm because we've never have thought of that right and then say what happens on the rare occasion where we don't get 48 hours notice of a crisis and they weren't happy with that because I think the thought of not getting 48 hours notice of a crisis is something they'd never thought of before. But they eventually decided that was okay if we got country general manager approval post facto. Now, if you work for IBM, you know that means your expenses will never get signed. So what actually happened is people overtip London taxi drivers. If you overtip a London taxi driver, you get a blank receipt. The blank receipt was then filled out for the amount of pizza and coke bought, and everybody was happy. Spoken like a true Brit. Yeah. yeah it was. So I, I told this story in Berlin, and three people from IBM ran up to me with their wallets full of blank receipts and said, we're still doing that with your inventor. Right? <laughs> that, that's what happens when you over-constrain a system. You get the appearance of compliance. But the reality I... is you're building up tension in the system, so when it collapses, it will collapse catastrophically. 
So a lot of our work and the sense maker work that Marion has shown is not just to work out what the attitudes are, but to work out whether constraint structure is likely to lead to a catastrophic failure because it's not recognizing reality. Because one, one of the things I'm really interested, sorry, Sonny, the, the attitude piece. And when I did the safety culture work, it's taken me 30 years to link the safety culture attributes to safety performance, which we finally managed. And it was a mix of quantitative and qualitative, like you described. So it took us a while to get there because I've done numerous surveys all over the world. Yeah. And But I've never found that those linked, the attitude surveys or the perception surveys, ever linked sufficiently to other indicators, whether lead or lagging. Whereas when we did this thing with these focus groups on the safety culture, it did. So my question for you, and I don't know if it would be a function of just the sheer number of uh, attitudes you would collect to make your predictions, but do you, does your, have you found your sense-making process links to actual accidents and accident records, uh, safety indicators, whatever? Is there a clear link statistically that you have between the two that would say, hey, you know, we've got something gold standard here and the whole safety profession needs to be pursuing this. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, the way you actually, it doesn't surprise me that you wouldn't get correlation. Yeah? Because if you actually run a focus group or a workshop, or if you actually give people a questionnaire, then your hypotheses are visible to the people who are providing responses. Yeah? Now that means they well, or, or you put so many bloody questions in to get around it that they won't complete them. It's kind of I like only asked, I only asked one. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? How effective is it? That was it. Sorry, say again. What you, I asked them, what do you do? And on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate the effectiveness of what you do? That was the only question we asked. That right, was it. So that's, one, that's one explicit question, right? Um, and if I, you're asking, it's got a hypothesis, which is effective, this is more effective, and it's actually judgmental because I've got to choose where I sit on the scale. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so if we look at the way we construct attitudes, we go back to things like cultural anthropology, we look at senses of fairness, we look at that material, but the respondent doesn't know what the right answer is. Right. Yeah? We're also doing real-time observation of what's actually happening in a factory with people indexing behaviors that they see as they happen. And we're scaling that up in real time because the fact they interpret their own narratives means the quant data is originated by the person who has the material, not by the expert or not by the questionnaire. So it's oh. a real-time mass quant process. Where it has been used in safety is to trigger attitudinal shifts. So people are doing the more like this, fewer like that. So this maker has been put in operationally to change attitudes. Now, the anecdotal data from that, and though we haven't conducted the full experiment on it, if somebody wants to do that, I welcome the chance. All right? But fundamentally, what people are doing is coming back to saying, right, we actually got... Um, fewer accidents. So, for example, one of the big ones we did in aircraft, they ended up with a rule which said if you've got 10 years' experience and somebody with five years' experience signs it off, you can break any rule provided you make the rule visible and you follow these five heuristics. Yeah? Now, the anecdotal report back from that was that accidents dropped significantly. 
Yeah. Now, you see what we're doing there is you're trying to get the lead indicators in place. You're giving people a tool to understand it, right? The other point is you're not going for what's called retrospective, retrospective um, coherence. If you're dealing with a complex adaptive system, you're trying to objectify abductive thinking. You actually haven't got an inductive relationship because the context shifts so much each time that you haven't got repetition. So your measure of success is more explicit. Did accidents go down? So when, for example, we use SenseMaker to generate the data and we introduce ritual in this was in IBM with New Zealand lorry drivers, and the off-site accidents halved over the next year. Now, we can't show a direct it would be wrong for us to say there was a causal link because there are so many other factors coming into play. But this is one thing which contributed to that. If you look at um, cybersecurity, where we've been working with Cheltenham and others, yeah, attitudinal measure is absolutely key because the way in which hackers can get through is so many and various that if people are just relying on the rules, the rules can't keep up with the way in which compliance breach happens. So attitudes become even more significant, yeah, in preventing breach. Yeah. Dave, if I may, we've got a bit of feedback on your on your voice there. I, I don't, I, maybe I don't know speaker or something, but can I, Dom? I know you've got a thousand questions, and you and I have talked about this. And I'm going to come to something at the end, which I'd like to. Oh, thanks, thanks, Dave. I'm going to some, come to something at the end, which I'd like to propose uh, for all of you to consider. But while we've got a captive audience. Um, I always judge these live events by the number of chats going on. It seems that there is a massive absorption process at the moment. There are a couple of questions coming through. But let me just pan around at the moment. And Dom, if I may just, just come back to you later on. Mal, Charlie, Gemma, Marion, Gary, chime in if there's something you want to add, a question or whatever. Believe it or not, we've hit one hour and nearly seven minutes now. So we must be enjoying ourselves, yeah? <laughs> Mal? Some, something's going right. <laughs> something's going right. Yeah, I, I've just got well, well so, sort of a, a, an observation, really. Uh, I was interested to see uh, where I think it was Marion that mentioned, uh, as opposed to bending the worker, uh, you bend the work to suit. Uh, uh, well, surely again, that that's not new, uh, because that is ergonomics, a man-machine interface. Mm. Is that what you're referring to, Marion? Um, I think it's more kind of. Sorry, there's something coming back. Can you mute people there, please, Sonny? Yeah, I will mute back. Dom, uh, Gary. Uh, I think you should be Gary. good to go. Dave, I'm going to mute you, okay? If possible, please. And Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and I think, like, uh, you're talking about ergonomics there. It's more about bending the rules to get the work done or bending the work to fit around the rules, like, so people might be going around about the houses to get the job done so that they're actually aligned with the rules. It might necessarily be ergonomics. But the whole right. point of asking that and having it on two polar opposites is that you actually get, you actually know where you are and you know what's actually going on. And we could see there actually that people were bending the rules to get the work done. So we don't know what that's telling us. Are the rules fit for purpose? That's only a question. Do you know what I mean? But I'm right. curious yeah. to know now why. Are people bending the rules to get the work done? Do you know what I mean? Have they been involved in actually creating those rules and those procedures? The people that do the work, or maybe it was somebody far removed from the work who came up with it, 
and they're not fit for I, I I don't know it's a question but you have to go back yeah. and get the context from those stories Gary let me just unmute you Gary yeah. hold on yeah yeah I, I'm, 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 I'm sure that the, I'm sure I'm sure that those sort of things do uh, occur uh, where rules and procedures are written maybe at a, at a desk in an office uh, and are not written at the coalface uh, and so when the two come together uh, there will be maybe a misinterpretation of that particular rule yeah and this is where uh, you will get the, the the shortcut yeah but maybe it's a misinterpretation or actually maybe the rule is written to be presented in front of a judge rather than actually for the guys who are actually doing the job a lot of the times procedures can be written with the whole litigation process in mind not the people actually doing the work and yeah. the safest and easiest way for them and we do go the path of least resistance so we, we do need certain boundaries and constraints there but sometimes we go too far and it's like hand me down the moon stuff that's in those rules and procedures and we tend to think it's like the elves and the shoemaker that come in by night and do all this wonderful work but that can't be done by day when all the people in the white coats and stuff uh, are Mal, yeah. uh, all right. Sorry, um, sorry. Um, Dave, wrote, go ahead, Dave. When I wrote in my 9001 manual, all right, I got called in by the CEO. And I said, why the hell are you getting me to write this? Because I, I normally break the rules. And he said, poachers make the best gamekeepers. You write something people will follow. He said, if I give it to health and safety, it will be a 55-volume manual and nobody will follow it. And we'll get compliance <laughs> breaches, right? So I wrote 73 pages, and it basically yeah. had a series of UK statements for anything that we knew what to do. And for anything else, it said, assemble these three people, and that forced diversity, and they make a decision, and you follow it. Yeah? We then had a parallel book of the people who had to be removed from the office when the inspectors came, because they couldn't be trusted to give the right answers, right? But that was a sort of dark secret. And the point was, we knew that there's a context in which you cannot anticipate through a rule what people should do. Military people know this. So you need a process to manage decisions in that context. And you need to know when you've crossed the boundary. And there's nothing in the interventions we do, which you guys haven't done for years. Humanity managed with gravity for centuries. Then Newton came along and we knew the theory behind it. And once you knew the theory, you can get more successful. Right. Okay. Um, I just I just want to make a point to um, back up what you said, Mel. A lot of those things that we have in safety pulse, <clears throat> they're there because we've done a lot of research, we've gone into the safety sciences. Dom, I read a lot of your stuff as well here. Because what we wanted to find were the elements that are in there for the past 30, 40 years and make use of them. But kind of like structure them in these signifiers like triads and dyads, because people kind of like understand them already. So like Dave says, now we place the cognitive load. What was it? Did you bend the work or did you bend the, uh, or, or did you comply with the rule? Did you bend the rules? What was it? So they, are, they don't have to guess like, what are you talking about? Or they know what scheduling, safety, productivity already means to them. Because right. that's where- The other thing we've done, Don, which we'd be interested in you playing with, to be honest, all right, mm -hmm. is we've, we've constructed a, a fictional frame based on actual incidences, because you can get people to be honest in a fictional environment. Mm -hmm. So we first did this in South African mines. We presented a situation where if you follow the rules, people die. If you break the rules, you get fired. Right? And it's fairly easy to construct those. We then present that to the whole workforce and get them to tell a story of how they think it might happen to them 
then index it. So we move the whole thing into a fictional setting. Then we draw the maps from that. And that's actually the most successful way of doing attitude mapping. I'm finding the, the triad fascinating because way mm -hmm. back in the day when I first got into safety after you missed and I began to think about this notion of safety culture and so on and we'd had Chernobyl and all the rest of it and I'd come up with a model of safety culture based on Bandura's reciprocal determinism and I'd kind of taken that and said you know we can do stuff with it so we could take the psychology element and we can use attitudinal surveys or whatever safety climate at the time was a very young thing i think i was the first one to introduce it into britain via the hse research um and then i was saying well okay so you you've got these you've got these attitude psychological factors going on in your head and then we have the behaviors what are these behaviors so and specific behaviors and, and this is terrific, you know, so we've got these behaviours. And then over here, and Geller talks about environment factors and Bandura talks about environment factors. And I said, well, no, because the environment is physical. We're talking about situation, perhaps what Marianne and Gary and yourself might use as context, the term context. So, but perhaps not quite that far, because in the middle of my model was context, how you apply this model in context. Um, but I'm finding it fascinating that, you've kind of got these triads where you're working out the relationships between those pieces in a real way which i i, yeah. I mean I'm, I'm like after 30 years of trying to prove that model i'm absolutely fascinated <laughs> and you might actually come up with a way of of doing it you know i did it in a different route and yeah. um the, the behavior because we concentrate on the behaviors and so on and the systems so because the research I've learned from safety culture, when I looked at the whole safety culture field going back to 1984 to 2016, the big striking piece out of that was safety is very much about relationship between the behavior and the situation. The attitudinal piece, the psychological piece is there, but if you like to take your Pareto thinking, it's only 20% of the cake, 80% of the cake. The thing to remember is we, we were driven on this in counter-terrorism. That's where we come from, mm, right? So and that's actually a, that's a much harder problem because it's not just what individual behavior. It's actually the narratives they hear which influence the way they behave. So when we came sideways into safety, we'd actually dealt with a, a different sort of problem. And because we'd done that, we were looking at these what are called tropes in narrative theory these patterns of water cooler stories, which indirectly influence people's behavior, regardless of behavioral economics, right? The other big thing, which again, I'd be really interested in what you did with this, right? Is what the fitness landscapes allow you to do is to take a different approach to nudge behavior. Mm. I had a major argument with Halpin, I've had three major arguments with Halpin. And I basically said, you guys don't nudge, you yank. <laughs> which he doesn't like all right um so yeah, he just got the contract with obama so he knew what i was doing there. <laughs> what we can do with the dispositional maps is we can identify where the system can be nudged at low energy gradient and then we can actually by the more like this fewer like that question so if you go to under this in the steelworks in in australia recently you go in and you show them and say what can you guys do tomorrow to get more stories like this and fewer stories like that 
you don't say how do you become more safety conscious because they'll say they are but if you show them stories from people they recognize they can generate methods to achieve that shift and i think one of the other things we've done there is to use apprentices with more senior guys the very young with the very old because actually that works really well as a linkage mm -hmm. so i think it's this ability to distribute decision making about safety culture into the network in real time yeah, you know, which is part of that. And again, you can see why we came out from counterterrorism. Because if you allow a negative pattern to emerge, it's too late to recover. Yeah. I would love to work with you guys and see how we can merge what we've been doing. Don't, don't go there yet, Dom. I'm going to come on to something in a minute. All right. Um, so, so what, what I want to do, what I want to do is. Dom, yes, we'd like to, all right. Let's just come to that in a minute. Gary, Gary, go. Yeah. Dom. Just one more point, John. Yeah. I mean, when I did the research in developing safety pulse, I came across the, uh, the Jan Rasmussen model, right? And a lot of people are familiar with that. That is a triad. When you think about it, there's three sides that he created way back then. I'm going like, oh, my God, he actually did the first triad in safety. And look, there's safety as one. There's kind of like pressure from management. And the third one is least cost of energy. There it is, right? Mm -hmm. So I've taken that and said, I think we have another triad that we need to put on the safety pulse. So we do go back to what's already there and make use of all the research that's been done. Yeah, I, th I think triads are, are, are pretty well established in engineering and various other fields. I'm mindful that we've got a lot of folks uh, uh, on 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 the uh, box here. Charlie, Gemma, do you have any? Yes, Charlie, let me unmute you. Sure. Uh, thanks for that. I, I, I'm again what I said right at the very start and the and the, the, the second episode. I'm I'm looking at this as a practical application. Uh, from a, an organisation, a large construction project and things like that. And I'm sure I, there, there will be people who will be tuning into this later on. And, and I, I don't want to dumb it down, but I want to try and put some practical uh, insight into this and, and some experiences. And, and from my perspective, the what David, Dave was saying about Newton and gravity, and gravity is always there, and Newton came along and, and, and gave us a theory and everything about it. Uh, we talked about this last week where, I, where Dave's been living in my head and I've been I'm trying to understand uh, kind of heaven and putting it into practice and things like that. So I, I'm thinking of this purely, and I've, I've done this retrospectively, and I'm going back two and a half years now when I first came on to this project. And when I first came on to this project, I it was disorderly. I was in disorder. Uh, I was dropped into it pretty quickly. The previous incumbent had gone, and I'm having to get my head round the complex, the complicated, and, and making my uh, identifying the domain, making my decisions and moving on. I had to learn pretty quickly. Uh, I'd made, had to make my mistakes early and move on. So the, the whole aspect, and, and, and at all times trying to stop things tipping into this chaotic um, uh, domain. So for me, the, the practical application of this is 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 there I, I can do it i can understand it i can look at it retrospectively i can look at it from an individual point of view it can work with regards to teams with groups and things like that so from my perspective david i said this the last time you don't need my validation by any manner of means but from my perspective it, it works uh and it's just understanding of those things but particularly uh, let me give you an example of this the complicated aspect the domain uh that you've got a blueprint you analyze you respond is good practice. You you seek an expert. 
is fits exactly with the decisions we made here on our structural steel uh, bridge build program. We've got 27 bridges across Riyadh, which are uh, we've had to put an awful lot of effort into. It. So what we do is we go to a subcontractor that is this is the expert that and, and we have plans in place. We have the expert in place. We have our meetings and everything else like that. And that sits within that complicated domain. And I, and I, I follow on exactly what Dom was talking about earlier on, is that from my perspective in the environment I work in, we're looking at pretty much complicated being the dominant with, with aspects of the simple. Um, and the, the complicated domain fits exactly into what we've been doing with the decisions we've made to ensure that our structural steel 27 bridges has worked well. And we've had no, no crane failures, no load failures, no, seri- uh, no lost time injuries at all, pretty much because we've been following exactly what's within that, that, that domain that, that Dave is so eloquently put together. So again, for me, I just want to make sure that we, we understand that from my perspective, there's a practical application to this at, at, at an individual level and on a project level. Thanks, Charlie. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll go through it very quickly because we've got one hour and 22 minutes in now. Gemma, sure. have you got any um, thoughts, uh, Gemma, from yourself? Wait, I might have to unmute you. Hold on. Go ahead. Uh, no, um, I'm just sitting and enjoying everybody else's discussion, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it's mind-bending stuff, isn't it? There's a lot of information going in. I've got lots of notes and stuff that I'm going to take away from it, but I don't really have anything I can add well, more than anybody else has put in. I, yeah, Mal, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I, I just noticed a quick uh, question that was flashed up, uh, and that was, uh, "How do we apply the framework to an emergency response?" I think that was was that from Mustafa. Yeah, Mustafa Tutkun. Okay, so that that actually gives me a nice ride into what I want to say at the end, anyway, Mal. So, um, but um, okay, this is the longest show I've done. One hour and twenty-three minutes. Usually, we crack off it. Can Dave, I, did I you want to say, say something? something into that? Because it's yeah. Yeah, and I'm currently finishing off, and I've got to stay up tonight until I finish it off, the European Union Handbook on Crisis and yeah, Complexity Management, mm. um, which, as I say, is ironic given the stupidity of the English. We're blaming you guys for Brexit, right? <laughs> um, but um, that actually is going to, that uses, that's adopted by the European Union, that uses the Kinevin framework to identify how you shift out of a crisis. Right, so that's going to be published in a few weeks' time, and that will be available. So for those who want to know more on that, we'll be organising seminars with the European Union around that um, over the probably late December, January. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Um, I'm going to piggyback go off. Go ahead, Tom. Because my question, funnily enough, relates to that, and it's mm-hmm. kind of is, what if your dominant narrative is wrong? So I was thinking of Plotomy versus. Yeah. okay so we've got the the earth is the center of the universe <laughs> and then copernicus who says well actually we've just proven that the sun is the center of our universe the earth revolves around the sun not the other way around so but that earth being the center of everything and the sun going around the earth that was around from egyptian time so bc i don't know they had a they had a nice little gadget, 150 BC, that they used to predict when all the stars were going to align and do all these wonderful things. And that was good till roughly I don't know, mid 1400s or whatever. But the dominant the dominant narrative would have been so Marion's going out collecting all this data and she's making all these nice field maps and 
topo topography and wonderful stuff, but the actual assumptions wrong. <laughs> I think, I mean, remember you're talking to somebody who's theoretical background is theoretical physics and philosophy so it's danger to get into philosophy of science at this point i'm just my father was a veterinary surgeon and after i was forced to do sheath washings on welsh bulls at the age of 11 <laughs> being laughed up by welsh farmers i went for theoretical physics and and philosophy it was a lot safer right but um yeah. i think the key the key concept in philosophy of science called coherence and we actually measure for this, right? So this is one of the ways you do theory testing. So if I present an idea to 5,000 people, get them all to interpret it, I can see the outlier opinions as well as the dominant views. Okay? Now the concept of coherence basically says that we know that evolutionary theory is wrong because we keep finding out new things, but we know the basic principles are coherent to the fact. So it's a journey worth pursuing. Whereas young earth creationism is incoherent to the fact, so it's not worth pursuing. So what we now do in philosophy of science, partly to avoid this thing, is what's coherent and what's incoherent, rather than to assume one thing is right. Now, one of the things we do with SenseMaker is literally to measure coherence and to test the theory of the field in mind. So, for example, when we do the triangles, we can build multiple theories in the triangles and see... I'll give you a, a, the easiest example of that. We did a lot of work on teenage suicide, right, which is a massive problem worldwide. And if you report it, it becomes worse. And there are all sorts of theories associated with bullying, social deprivation, um, chemicals. There's a whole body of theories. So rather than have a series of separate research programs, we get the kids to keep a diary and we put material to do with obesity, deprivation, bullying into the triangles and see if those things come up naturally in their stories or not. So rather than suggest a causal factor, we see if the causal factors come up in the stories. And we can also then measure which ones are actually catalytic causes rather than primary causes. And in humans, that's a really important distinction because some things catalyze other things. So they don't appear to have causality but actually they do indirectly in that sense. So nobody's going to say you can get this right, but the fact that I can find the 17% who've seen a gorilla and get the executives to go and talk with them is actually really important because otherwise they'll ignore it. Dave, um, you've given me a bit of a, a line into the closure part of it, but before I do that, I've, I'm just going to unmute everyone because I'm going to ask them to help me with something. Uh, if you're on mute, please just unmute. Um, I just want to say that when I first approached you, because we're getting to one hour and 28 minutes now, when I first approached you, I was thinking, and you may recall this, Dave, I said to you, we're not going to do this in one show. We're not going to do this in two shows, three shows, four shows, five shows. And as Dom said, this is going to be, this is going to be a, a bit of a, a process for, for all of us. Now, with your background in physics, the word I want to put to you is unification and the concept of unifying all of these things, if it's ever blooming possible, into something that is tangible. But the glory of physics is that general relativity theory and quantum mechanics contradict each other paradoxically. That's why it's such a fun yeah. subject. Yeah, I mean, we. the thing for me, and, and Dom echoes it, is that this is like an unfinished meal for me, right? This is like an itch that I can't stop itching. It just seems to go on and on and on. And 
as much as I love all the stuff in it, I'm still thinking about how Joe Punter out in the world is going to be able to use this. And I said to Gary and Marion when we were doing the pre-chat last week, I said, I don't think this is the end of the journey. I think this is actually the start of it. And I'm wondering how, we can have a chat afterwards after the show finishes, but I'm wondering how we can take it to a level. Because there's obviously a lot of interest in this and Dom's interested in it, I'm interested in it, Terry, everyone's interested in it. But we need to take it much further. And if you if you guys are receptive on the Kinevan side, let's sort of think about how we can do a few more shows and bring practical applications into it. Real practical applications like what Charlie's we're doing. Interested what to do, we're potentially interested to do more than that, Sony. So Good. one of the things we'd be interested in is to take the work we've done on attitudinal mapping, particularly based on fictional settings. Sure. And create that so we could have mass participation and experiment on it and look at the results. Because that would give Dom and people like that the sort of data they want. So we're really open to that. Yeah. Good. Effectively, yeah, you guys work with us, put something together, we'll make it available for mass participation. Yeah. Excellent. And get some we'll, real data we'll, we'll, Yeah, we'll work on that because we've we've certainly got enough enough mass on our side now with Dom, Terry, Mal, Charlie, Gemma, and a whole load of other people. Closing thoughts around the monitors are, I just want to go around and say, Gary, just um, we'll come with you at the end, Dave. Gary, any closing thoughts for you? Well, um, as opposed to like beginning of the journey, we're suggesting that you join the journey that we're already on. If anybody wants to see Safety Pulse, we actually have a demo up and running. It's online. You can go in there, kick the tires. You can actually enter stories to see how the signifiers work. And if you're really, really nice and you send an email, I'll even give you the workbench so you can see all of the heat maps and the narrative landscapes. This is a demo, so it's kind of like you can't break it. And it's just looking at data in a different way. So I'm Can you send me the up. link, Gary? I'll put it on the um, on the post that goes out as well. I will do that. So if anybody wants to try it out, please go ahead and do so. It's Christmas. Time to giving. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, Marion. Uh, yeah. No, uh, thanks. I think, as you were saying, we just kind of skimmed the surface here today just on presenting um, what we did and uh, happy to discuss some more. And Dom, just to come back to you there, you were on about the triffer rates earlier on as well. And... Um, I came across research on that actually, whereby it is useful if you have huge amounts of data. And I think it's like 66,000 um, is kind of the figure you need to be looking at. From there upwards, it can be meaningful, but for under that, it's not meaningful. So um, I'll try and pull that bit of research and I can send that on to you as well. Um, but I just want to thank you. And uh, it was enjoyable and happy to carry on the conversation. Thank you, Marion. Going down the screen, Gemma. You're on mute. Can I mute you? Closing thoughts? I'm uh, just fascinated and interested to know an awful lot more on this. So I've got a big list of things I'm going to read. I've later. seen the light get less and less in your background there, which is also a good indicator for me. Uh, we've got questions coming in from Mike. Mike Stockclean, mm. what if the dominant narrative is wrong? Reminds me of Deming Card, rather. Okay, so we'll come to that in a second. I just want to go around as I was doing. Charlie, your good self, please. Any Any closing thoughts? Uh, no, I think, though, like I said before, from me personally, it's about the practical application and, and, and everything right. else like that. Yeah. The theory is great. I, I, I get it. But, I, I, you know, it's a practical application of it. It's, a, it's key to me. Uh, Mal? Yeah. 
Thanks very much, uh, Gary, Marion, uh, uh, for your, your input today. It certainly clarified some, some areas. Uh, and as Charlie just mentioned, we certainly need to take this a lot, lot further uh, uh, so that we can uh, use it in a practical application uh, and use it in our own industries. Uh, and as, as David has already mentioned, uh, this applies not just to one industry, but to many industries. Wonderful. Thanks, Mal. Dom, I know you can probably ask another thousand questions, but... Your mind is always whirring. Yeah, I know, but now it's like excitedly whirring. That's oh, that's it. good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I'm genuinely excited about how this might be applied. And for me, it's actually... And Gary, I think, has probably followed the debate since the beginning of the year between myself and the S2 people and Decker and so on and so forth, where I've been absolutely vilified. And I'm like, okay, fine. And I'm kind of what I'm really looking forward to here and listening to Gary. And he and I have discussed on LinkedIn by text, but to be able to speak face to face is wonderful because I'm beginning to see a bridge. I'm beginning to see a bridge between the tribes. I'm beginning to see, as I was right, I'm always right. I'm like David in that sense. I've always believed I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong in being right all the time. Yeah, yeah. My wife's trying to give me a clip around the ear now and again to remind me I'm not always 100% right, but there you go. Um, yeah, you're not, you're not always right, but you're never wrong. There you go. There you go. But yeah. I like that, that we can bridge the safety one, the methodology for safety one, which, as everyone said, is pretty much the same. And going to Charlie's point about being very pragmatic, how are we going to save a life? Because that's where I always come at this from. Yeah, I've been the supervisor who had to look the widow in the eye and say, sorry, we killed your husband today. And it just the fact that you happen to be my wife's best friend really didn't help a lot, okay? So it's personal. So to be able to bridge those methodologies with the methodologies that you've got might help us get past this philosophical clash, which is where I think the safety two camp and the safety one camp actually clash. It's not on the methods, it's the philosophy. My understanding of resilience from the, the resilience researchers is the philosophy of resilience is about um, functioning and operating right on the edge of failure without falling over. Whereas the safety one philosophy is reasons thing of, hey, let's put some defenses in depth, let's make sure we don't get near the edge. And that's actually, in my view, and I might, I might be actually wrong, I don't know, but in my view, that's where this debate gets so heated. The methodological, okay, we can figure that. And I think this Canavan is the way. I think so is the bridge. It's yeah. the bridge between all of these different disparate viewpoints and so on. And if Mr. Decker and Mr. Holnagel and Mr. Conklin or something would like to take part in these debates as well, it would be brilliant. Yeah. Um, it would be brilliant. Yeah. And we can get past the tribal nonsense. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to say, Don, that that is something that I've been striving for as well. And I know you and me and everybody on this call, we can go on for another probably another two or three hours. Uh, and we, we do need to follow on. Um, Dave, closing thoughts from you. I hope it's not been too 
sort of uh no it's been it's been thoroughly enjoyable um i spent two days in stockholm being patronized by the safety two people which is far worse than having an argument with them yeah. <laughs> and we said oh there there you're quite clever really but please go away while the real guys but either way we, we, we dealt with that one all right um <laughs> it was quite entertaining towards the end it became a blood sport but I, th I think you're right. I think that the essence is a both and not an either or. And I think what you see with management movements is the next movement realizes the old way of doing things has limits. So then it claims a new universality. So it was like when we had business process re-engineering, we reached its limits. That doesn't mean we abandon it. We yeah. just know it doesn't work in some context. So I think that's key. And I say the office stands, I'd be quite happy to sit down and work with you guys, and design a sense maker instrument. So you're part of the design and you understand it, which we can make available for a mass trial. Yeah. And that yeah, would be a lot of fun to do. I think that's a brilliant suggestion. I think someone, um, I'm just going to sort of finish off with a few words. Someone said to me, why are you doing three shows with Dave, uh, Dave Snowden on this? Is he some sort of a demigod or a god or something? And I said, no, I said, I think it's because he has something there in the Kinevin framework and with my experiences in QRAs and every other thing. I think there's something there, as Dom very, very appropriately put it, as a bridge, a link. I don't know if it's unification or what, but there's something there that I think will bind us and bring us together so that we don't have so many of these experts in, in the complicated aspect going into chaos and all the other things, you know. So... I'd just like to say from my side, Dave, thank you for being so receptive to three shows, and there are many shows, hopefully, and Gary and Marion for taking part, and everybody on this on this session here, Mal, Dom, Charlie, and Gemma. And I'd just like to say, although it's a, it's a sort of a monitor one, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate all the efforts that you've put in. And um, if you can stay on after the live show ends, we'll have a quick roundup and uh, just to sort of thought about how to go forward but for me thank you very much it's been a very engaging session and um, I look forward to many many more thanks yeah, thank bye you everyone bye 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 bye, bye. 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 bye.